Heavenly Father, uh, we ask, Father, for your insight tonight. We ask for your guidance tonight, not just in what we learn, but also, Father, in our individual lives, each of us. What we do differently as a result of what we learn, Father, is what you care most about, and it's why we're here. And, Father, it's too easy to just get into the pattern of sitting at your feet and listening and uh, believing that just the, the hearing of something is enough for you. And we know, Father, you've told us in your word it isn't. And uh, some of us, Father, have things in our life that may relate very closely to things we'll learn tonight. And if so, we'll know what to do. And we'll ask your help in doing it. And for others, Father, for whom the circumstances do not directly compare, but nonetheless, you'll help us see something here tonight, Father, that's true for us in another set of circumstances. And we know, Father, you want us to be ready to handle those well, too. So, Father, prepare our hearts in that way. And for all, Father, I pray that we will be growing closer to you in what we learned tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, we're back in the study of the story of David and Bathsheba as David falls into sin and ends up doing some terrible things, both with Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah. This is the second installment in the section of the book that's devoted to David's failings, to chronicling the way in which David fell and how that affected the nation of Israel. This particular story, the, the one we're in now, it's, it's got to be the lowest point in David's life. This is a moment that comes relatively early in his reign when, as king. It comes at a time when the nation was battling the Ammonites. We looked at that last week. And as I've said here a couple times, uh, as David goes, so goes the nation of Israel. And these circumstances also will have an impact, considerable impact, on the nation of Israel. In some ways, what we're studying today becomes a turning point in the whole story of David as king. And you're going to see tonight that the Lord's penalty against David for his sin here becomes a penalty against the whole nation as well. We'll see that develop more in future weeks. Last week, we ended at the conclusion of chapter 11. David had taken Bathsheba as his wife after having conspired with Abner to kill Uriah. This allowed, I'm sorry, with with, uh, the commander of his army, not Abner, obviously, uh, with Joab. This allowed pregnant Bathsheba to escape the penalty of adultery, which would have meant death for her, because having married her, no one was the wiser about how she became pregnant. And it also protected David's reputation. It concealed his affair, or so he thinks. But the Lord knew what happened, and so eventually he is going to bring it to light because the Lord is not in the business of letting our sins stay secret. And that brings us to chapter 12. This is the climactic conclusion of these sad events, although it really just sets up a whole new series of things that transpire over the next few tra- chapters. So it has uh, reverberations that echo through the rest of this book. But as we get into it tonight, the climactic conclusion here, there are a whole lot of lessons here learned by David and for our sake as well. I'm not going to try to cover all of them. I think you could safely preach a month of Sundays just on this chapter, so I will uh, spare you from that, but we'll try to cover the main ones. Let's do 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 to open up tonight. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said, There were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Well, the chapter opens uh, immediately after what we read at the end of chapter 11, which is David's 
marriage to Bathsheba after Uriah's death. And you jump straight into this story at the beginning of chapter 12. But when you get into the details later, it becomes apparent that this chapter follows after a considerable period of time has passed since the marriage at the end of chapter 11. Later in this chapter, you're going to hear that a son had been born, the one that came out of that adulterous affair. And when we hear him mentioned here, the Hebrew word that's used to describe the boy is yeled, which is the word for a, uh, a boy of less than adulthood age. Sometimes it's translated a lad. Okay? This is not an infant. The word for infant in Hebrew is yanach. This is not the same word. So we're not talking about an infant here. Uh, if you've ever heard this preached as if, you know, the baby comes out of the womb and then it dies in a crib, you've got the wrong idea. <laughs> That's not what this is about. This boy could be as much as 10 years old. That's how the word can be used. It's short of adolescence. That's all it means, all right? So David has enjoyed some number of years with this son and has no doubt established a strong relationship with this boy like any father would. And this man is the, this young man is the heir apparent to the throne at this point. Interestingly, he's never named, which when you see how the story goes, becomes obvious why God never had a future intended for this young man. But at the time, David doesn't know this, obviously, and undoubtedly, as he has lived these years out with this young boy and his family, David has tried to put the sin of what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah behind him. And, you know, maybe he assumed by this point, certainly, that he had succeeded. But on the other hand, he is a man of God. He is a man after God's own heart. So we must also assume that there were moments, certainly more in the beginning, maybe less as time went on, in which he was tormented by the guilt of what he did. And you can see some of that reflected in his writings. Uh, David, as you know, wrote most of the Psalms, which is fascinating because it becomes a kind of self-commentary on what we see about him in the other books of the Bible. David, at about this early point in his time of, as king, we know he wrote Psalm 6, and he wrote of the torment of bearing sin in that psalm. Listen to this, and just a part of it, Psalm 6, 1. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Help me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. And if you go further into that psalm, he talks about his sin a little. Uh, you wonder sometimes when you read these if David's feeling at the time wasn't also uh, connected to this early sin in his life. He, he must have felt the weight of his sin. And yet for years, he has not publicly acknowledged it to anyone. And you, you may have, you know, almost anyone who's ever been alive for, for longer than uh, a few years and gone into you know, adolescence or adulthood, certainly we all can identify with that feeling of the weight of sin unconfessed bearing down the thought that I've hidden it so far, maybe forever, but then in the back of your mind, I wonder if. And, and at the same time, you wonder, what if I could just confess it? What if I could just make this right? And then you go back and you say, no, 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 I can't do that. And on goes the subterfuge. David's words in that psalm remind us that he has done nothing to confess his sin publicly up to this point. Elsewhere, in another psalm that David wrote, also one about sin, he writes this in Psalm 38, 13. He says, speaking of himself, he says, but I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I'm like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I'm like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no arguments. 
Again, Psalm 38 is a confessional psalm of a man who has sinned and wants to confess it. But he's saying, I didn't hear and I didn't speak about it. Unconfessed sin, that's a burden. And the burden of unconfessed sin has a detrimental impact on the heart of an individual and on their walk. It is corrupting, it is subtle, it doesn't necessarily come out all at once. We don't tend to want to acknowledge it, we tend to try not to think about it. But it sits there and it has an effect. As long as you hold on to sin without confessing it, moving away from it, you just make it easier to do more of the same. You kind of double down on it. And you dare God to deal with it in a dramatic fashion. Unfortunately, that was the path David took, and he continued to hold on to his secret for some number of years while his son was growing up. Eventually, God moves to remind David of his sin and expose it. And that's where we start in chapter 12 when God speaks through Nathan the prophet, and he reveals to Nathan that David had this misadventure, and Nathan now has to go confront David over it. I have to imagine the prophet was shocked you know, that his, that his king had done anything of this sort. And then it now falls to Nathan to go confront David about this sin and to do it in a way that will cause David to accept the truth of it and repent. So he comes to David telling a story about a man who wrongs another man in David's kingdom. Now, this is a really risky move on Nathan's part. He could not have been sure going in what David was going to do with this. Remember, David conspired to kill a man to keep this same thing secret. So who is to say he wouldn't have done the same to the prophet when the prophet comes to him in a private moment and says, I know what you did. You know, next thing you know, the prophet's dead and everybody's wondering why. That's a potential possibility here. And knowing what David had already done, you couldn't discount the fact that he might do this again. But Nathan had been told by God, confront David, And that's his mission, and that was a mission regardless of the circumstances, which reminds us that if and when God calls us to confront someone in their sin, we do so without regard for the circumstances or the consequences. If you're called to confront, confront and leave the rest to God. And whatever comes of it, including in case of of Nathan, potentially death. So Nathan comes to David, he confronts him with this parable, really. It's a story in parabolic form, Uh, But, of course, we know what it's representing. It's representing David's own actions. But Nathan approaches this parable as if it were true. He lets David think it's true. And in the story, as you heard, you have a powerful man who uses his power to take advantage of an unprivileged man, a weak man, a poor man. This rich man has many flocks of sheep, while the poor man has just one little ewe lamb. And it's so contrived that you wonder how David didn't see it coming. This, This poor man has bought and nourished this one lamb we're told it grew up together with his family they ate with the lamb he slept with the lamb it became like a daughter to him now if that's the part of the story that seems a little over the top to us don't think of the lamb as a farm animal because that's not what it would have been in that day not not to everyone A, a lamb was a pet often in that day could be you know it was also livestock yes but people kept lambs as pets. Dogs and cats were not preferred animals in that day. They were not uh, seen as anything other than pests. So in the way you would treat your dog, your dog sleep in the bed, their lamb slept on the bed. Your dog ate at your table, their do- you know, this is the comparison that you need to see. Of course, the story is a comparison between David's harem of beautiful women, we assume, his flock, and Uriah's only wife, Bathsheba. And the point being, David had his choice of wives. And he could have taken virtually any virgin in the nation and made her a wife if he had wanted to. And obviously it's a sin for David to do that every time he took 
an additional wife. It was adultery. But the point is, he had an abundance in this area. Meanwhile, Uriah limited himself to just one wife, and he prized that wife like every man should, his wife. And he was close to Bathsheba in the way that God intended for every husband to be. And what's interesting in this is that's not the way David understood marriage from what we see in the scripture. David seemed to collect wives like a hobby. You know, uh, like when you have a hobby, you collect things, you quickly lose interest in the one you get for the desire to get the next one. And David's approach to marriage seems to have had that style to it. In a sense, he's like a rich man who has so many sheep in his flock, he doesn't particularly notice any one of them. It's more the collection that matters to David. Now that's the start of this story as Nathan approaches David. And even just in what we've read, you have one of the most compelling arguments in all of scripture for the perils of seeking multiple wives. Uh, the command God gave in the big beginning was for a man to leave his parents and take a wife and then to cling to her, which is another way of saying to become one with her, that command set the expectation that marriage stops at one and that husband and wife then devote themselves to one another forevermore. But at some point early in history, sinful men perverted what God created by multiplying wives to themselves and then later other men look at that earlier precedent and use it to defend their choice to do the same thing again. One man's sin becomes excuse for the next. And even today, as I think you've heard me say in past weeks here, I'll get an occasional person here or there that will try to convince me that multiple marriages is entirely biblical, but their argument for it in each and every case is so-and-so did it. In this story, you actually find one of the strongest biblical arguments against it from the standpoint that you see the devastating consequences of taking multiple wives as it played out in David's heart. Because he could move from conquest to conquest, and as a result of society allowing that, of it being acceptable in that culture, as a result, he had little incentive to invest in the relationship side of marriage. Why even care about building a relationship with a woman when every wife was little more than property and an object of lust instead of of love? And man's ability to dominate women, obviously that's, that's you know, self-evident, it made the sin possible. It's funny, you never see women taking multiple husbands, right? It's always the, the dominant male effect, but society's acceptance of it just institutionalized it, at least for a time. And the negative effects of that particular sin are always evident in Scripture. You can see it in the story of Abraham, you can see it in the story of Jacob, you can see it in this story. There's always a commentary in the subtext as how you see the story playing out which says this isn't good. This has not been a good thing. God uses it, yes, God may work through it because you know, frankly, that's all he has. Have you ever been confused or bothered by the fact that God works through sin? Well, give him a second choice. I mean, what else is there? It's all he has. But that doesn't mean he's endorsing it. So how differently might David have acted when he spied Bathsheba from the roof that night if at that time he had been a man fully devoted to his first and only wife, Michal? What would his reaction have been to a woman across the way? Versus a man who by that point had already taken up the practice of multiple wives and as such, he saw every woman as a potential conquest because there's no limit. That gave opportunity for his lust to turn into adultery through multiple marriages and when it happened that the object of his lust was already married, well, that just gave him opportunity to graduate to murder. 
That this is the way sin moves us from the little things to the big things. This entire account is God's clearest and most compelling argument in the Bible against the sin of multiple marriages. So Nathan sets up the story here. And as you see him going through it now, it's clear what his tactic is. He's, he's trying to provoke David's sense of justice against that rich man's uh, presumption and he is trying to uh, move David to a point of self-righteous or righteous anger in uh, justice for that poor man and the treatment that he received. He wants David to be in the position to judge himself, not knowing that that's what he's doing. So verse four, now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. And rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. In verse four, Nathan uh, gets to the point. He says that rich man wasn't satisfied with his riches. He wanted still more, so he robs the poor man of that one lamb that the poor man had. Unwilling to take one of his many lambs, he took the one that this one guy had. So not only did he lose his valuable possession, but he also lost this prized relationship, this source of companionship. And what makes the whole thing worse, of course, is how unnecessary it was. There's nothing about that lamb that meant so much to that rich man that he couldn't have given up one of his own. He couldn't care less about his own. It's the callous indifference to the poor man's plight that makes the whole thing so egregious. And David sees that outrage. David's righteous anger is provoked. His instinct is to bring justice to that poor man, as he should. And he reacts just as Nathan intended, great anger, wanting to do something to rectify this wrong. David says, surely this man must die. Now that's hyperbola. David himself recognizes that that's hyperbola because that's not the punishment in the law for stealing a lamb. The law actually covers this explicitly In Leviticus, if you take someone's lamb, you have to give back four lambs, which is why David says he must give restitution fourfold. So David has said, kill him. That's kind of how I feel, but I know the law says four lambs. Let's at least make sure that gets done. But what's ironic is that even though he thinks this is a story, the parable is, is reflecting his own behavior, and in his own case, his actual sin was adultery, which is punishable by death. So in effect, David just declared his own death sentence, rightly so, and doing it unknowingly, then Nathan lowers the hammer. Verse seven, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. So David, uh, Nathan rather says quite famously to David, you are the man, but he doesn't mean it the way we say it. 
uh, he's, he's revealing to him, of course, you're the one who deserves the punishment that you just announced. And in this case, that would be death. Uh, and before David knows what to say, and I can only imagine the expression on his face at this point, uh, you, you can probably imagine it yourself, right? Someone who's kept a deep, dark secret for years, one that's serious, one that has the serious potential to undermine his position, and it's out. And there's that brief moment where you wonder, can I deny this? That brief moment where you feel like, is there an excuse possible? What do I do in this moment? The Lord is taking David to a moment of shock to bring him through it for a moment of repentance. And he starts by reminding David of all the grace he had received from the Lord from the very beginning, starting with God choosing David as king and preserving him from Saul when he was under attack, delivering the entire nation to David as ruler. And notice in in verse eight, curiously, the Lord talks about giving him his master's house and his master's wives. Now, if that makes you feel as if he's saying God gave David multiple wives, you're not understanding the text properly, although I have seen some try to use this verse that way. That's not what it says. First of all, the master here is Saul. David's master is a way of saying his prior lord, or the Saul in this case, his predecessor. So when Saul died and David inherited the throne, uh, or was assigned the throne by God, he received the master's household, Saul's household of male servants. That's what that refers to. The men who worked the land the men who worked the animals, the men who worked in the house, all the stuff you need to operate a palace and be a king, all the people that came with that were once Saul's. They didn't go away when Saul died, and it's, you know, they transitioned to the new king. And God gave David the master's house, that's what that refers to, and of course, complementing them were all the women in the house who do the chores and the work that the women servants did. They are the master's wives. The word there in in Hebrew, isha, it's uh, the same word in Hebrew for wife as it is for just woman. So it could just as easily be translated uh, the master's women. It's not necessarily a reference to wives at all, it's a reference to the female servants to complement the male servants that he just mentioned. So both sides, that's what he's talking about here. The whole house of Saul, male and female servants. You got all of that. So the point is obvious, right? David had been incredibly blessed by God as a matter of grace, and David therefore could not use the excuse of deprivation or of want as a defense for why he felt the need to take one more woman that wasn't his. On the contrary, he had everything. He had been blessed abundantly, and if that hadn't been enough, God says, you could ask me, I'd have given you something more. I could have given you anything. I mean, that is an amazing statement all by itself, isn't it? That is not promising that every time you ask something of God, you'll get whatever you want. That's not what that says, but it does say that in David's case, had David gone to God and said, I feel a emptiness in some respect, some need, and I can't get what I need, can you help me with this? David would have found a receptive audience in God. Now, of course, That does not mean that if David had gone and said, can I have Bathsheba, that God would have said, oh, sure, let's get rid of Uriah and I'll make that happen. No, that's not the implication. The implication is that uh, David's heart would have been satisfied in some respect. You know, God will not agree to a request that is sin. But he is saying, I have many infinite ways to satisfy your heart in, in its needs. So if you had been in a state of unfulfilled need, dissatisfaction in some respect, you could have come to me and we could have solved this problem together. That's what he's saying. Remember, your, your dissatisfaction in life is not beyond God's ability to remedy. He will likely remedy it in ways that are different 
than the way you might be suggesting through some, addition, some means other than the one you think is going to provide the satisfaction that you want. But when he does go in a different direction, that's gonna be good because in the long run, the way that we typically choose to remedy our needs, uh, whether that be a, a need of loneliness or emptiness or stress or, or anger or fear or jealousy or something, when we get those feelings that we wanna compensate with you know, stuff or people or food or habits or things that don't work, uh, God can fill that hole in your heart in ways you never imagined. And that's what his promise was to David. That's what his offer was to David. You didn't even try. Because you didn't want to try. I mean, we all understand what was going on. David didn't stand up there on the top of that, that roof that night, look down on a naked woman taking a bath and say to himself, you know, I feel this emptiness. I need to talk to God. <laughs> no. I mean, that's, what God is saying is don't play the pity thing with me. Don't, don't try to run into some corner of excuse that says there was justification here. You had it all. And instead, you took matters into your own hands, you chose to sin, and you did it to gain something that you thought would make you happy. I mean, we can safely assume that, right? He did it out of a desire for something he thought would please him. And God calls that choice that David made despising the word of the Lord. So God compares David's choice to sin in the way that he did to despising the word of the Lord. That the Lord is saying this, when you go against his commands, clearly stipulated, well understood commands, you're showing contempt. The word despise can be translated contempt. You're showing contempt for him and contempt for his word. And in the process you take for granted his grace. You know, we don't have to have everything David had to still have grace, to still have received many things. God has extended to us, if nothing else, you can be the poorest person on the planet, and if nothing else, you've been extended the grace of the revelation of his word. The God of the creation condescended to step into your world and announce himself and explain himself. That alone is grace enough for anyone. And God says you despise that when you don't use what you're given properly, when you don't follow what you've been asked to do in response to the blessings you receive. It is exactly the same way you would feel if you took a, a desperate, homeless, hopeless person into your home for some reason, you chose to do that, you gave them everything that they could actually ask for or want, you did it all without expectation of repayment. Uh, the only thing you asked of that person while they're in your home is follow the house rules, please. Don't put your feet on the table, clean up after yourself, something like that. That's it. And then one day you discover they've been stealing from you. It's taking stuff out of the house and selling it. Wouldn't you ask them the same question? Given everything I've done for you, everything I offered to you, the fact that I asked nothing in response, this is how you repay my kindness? That is the sense of what God is saying right now. You despised what I gave you and principally the word of God and what came with it. He despised God's grace and he abused the relationship. That is how God sees us as we sin. That is not how he sees us in our identity. Our identity is in Christ. By his work we are clean. We are seen as sinless because of Christ. I'm not saying anything less. But we're not talking here about our salvation. That's beyond the point here. The point is in our relationship, having already had it established by faith in Christ, in that relationship we now have, God sees his children this way when we sin, that we are despising the goodness of God in our life. And the primary impact for putting ourselves in that position with God is the inv invitation of God's discipline. We are inviting God's discipline. Now that is different than experiencing his judgment 
or his wrath. Notice God does not threaten David here, not in any personal way, nor does God display any wrath against David. that's, That's because David is a child of God by faith. We'll hear that repeated here in a minute. But at the same time, God's not ignoring the sin either, is he? He's not saying, oh, there's that faith thing again. Ah, that's right, never mind, go on, just don't worry about it. No, he doesn't say that. God shares with David now here through Nathan the consequences of the sin that he has you know, performed in the course of this situation. This is what happens when you live in despising uh, or in contempt, I guess, of God's blessing to you in his revelation of his word and all the ways he shows you his grace. You dare God to discipline you as a child of God. That's what Hebrews 12 says. And in verse 10, Nathan begins to line out, here's what the consequences are. He starts by saying, the sword shall never depart from David's house. Now, this is a bit of euphemism. You could trace it to some future battles and, and think that he just means warfare, but it's, it's broader than that. He's saying David's house will not know peace now as a result of this. There will be turmoil, there will be conflict, there will be trial in David's house because of this sin. And that turmoil is going to come in three principal ways, and that's what the prophet now outlines. The house of David will suffer three penalties, one for each of the 10 commandments that David broke in the course of this experience. First, David broke the 10th commandment, do not covet your neighbor's wife, and Nathan says because he did that, he's gonna find members of his own household coveting his wives. Secondly, David broke the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery, so Nathan says that some of David's own household will lie with David's wives committing adultery with them. And we'll learn this more later, but the men who do these two things we just talked about are David's own sons. So David's own sons are gonna be involved in this sin, making it doubly tragic. And then, interestingly, by the way, he says a man has to pay fourfold for his sin in the parable. Interestingly, four of David's sons end up dying before the story of David is finished being told. That's not necessarily a direct connection, it's just an interesting coincidence, if nothing else. And then verse 12, the Lord adds that although David tried to commit all his sin in secret, the Lord is gonna perform all of these acts of discipline in a very public way. They're gonna become very known in the culture. Everyone's gonna know this happened. And I think that's a principle of scripture also. That is, generally speaking, the Lord's preferred method of restitution when he's dealing out discipline to his children is to bring light to darkness to bring sins into the open. As Jesus says, that when he returns, nothing will be kept secret, nothing will be kept hidden. There's this, there's this principle of scripture that says light brings godliness. Light opens up and, and exposes sin. And God is not a God to hold back and hide sin and cover it up. He's a God to expose it, bring it in the light so it can go away. And the first step in bringing someone to that point where discipline is bringing light to sin and ultimately putting an end to it, the first step there is repentance, always, repentance. And sometimes if you're going to move someone to the point of repentance so that then the rest of the good things that follow can happen, you gotta take them through a shock. You have to shock the system of people sometimes who are engaged in secret sin so that they're willing to finally wake up out of it take their bitter medicine and move on in a better way. David, for, for example, had assumed that his sin was buried for good, at least until this moment, which is why Nathan approached the story in the way that he did, which is also why David didn't see it coming. You, 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 know, you would have thought maybe David would have suspected something as Nathan's telling the story. It might have rung some bells, but if it's been five years 
Six years, seven years, eight years since this thing happened. David the whole time working hard to put it in his rearview mirror, not to think too much about it, not to talk about it with anyone. Now it comes to him in this uh, left field way and he doesn't see it coming. He's not thinking about it. And the story is constructed in such a way that by the time David realizes who it's about, he's already in agreement that there needs to be a punishment. It's too late for him to try to make an excuse. At that point, he's trapped by his own words. But here's the test. The test for anyone who, in any kind of situation, goes through a period of sin, hides it, secret, tries to keep it secret, then it gets exposed by someone. Someone knows about it, and they bring it to that person's attention, however they do it, and in that moment comes the test. And the test is this. Do you embrace the opportunity to repent? Do you go forward in that moment or not? Moments like that, moments, and you know, I, this is a very specific one, obviously, but I dare say there is not a Christian on the planet who couldn't, if they were fully transparent, uh, talk to some similar thing of their own background, maybe things that happened deep in their background as a youth, maybe things that have happened more recently, maybe things that no one knows, not even their spouse, stuff that's just there in our background, and imagine, if you will, without saying anything, obviously, imagine, if you will, somebody right now could know about it and walk up to you in a corridor, in a hallway, in a private moment, and just say, this is what I know. What would you do with that moment? And that moment, whenever it comes to someone, is perhaps the supreme test of spiritual maturity and humility. How you respond when confronted on your own sin. If you are defensive, or you deny your actions, or if you attack the messenger, or if you run away, you continue in your sin, and you display a kind of spiritual immaturity. But most importantly, you just miss an opportunity. You miss an opportunity to grow. After all, the Lord is bringing a moment like this to David precisely so that he can rise above the thing that has been entangling him for so long. And what a shame if you miss that benefit. I like to say it's a test, and if you fail it, you get to do it again. You get to have another one. There'll be another day, another moment. As a pastor, it's never fun. It's never what you want. But there are going to be times when you lead a group of people in a spiritual context where sin comes to your attention and you want to help someone and you have to bring it to their attention and you have to talk to them about it. And it's always an interesting moment. I mean, not always a good one, but always interesting. How people deal with that moment tells you a lot about where they are in their walk with Jesus. Because if you cannot, when caught confess, when will you ever confess? And if you cannot confess, how will you move beyond? How does God begin a work in your heart if you cannot repent and turn? It's not that God doesn't have the power to do anything. It's that his methodology is to put us in a position where the turn is our responsibility, but he's done everything to bring us there, and he'll do everything to bring us out of it. He just asks for the turn, the softening of a heart. And the real shame of that moment if someone fails in it, is that repentance, when you really think about it, the way it normally goes, it's short, sweet, and simple, and cathartic. And it's over. And in most cases that I've been around anyway, you ask for forgiveness, it's answered with a yes, there's opportunity for restitution, and good things follow. It's, it's, you almost wonder after the fact, why didn't I just do this the first time? So rarely is that moment go you know, badly in any real sense. Usually it's, it's, it's much easier than anyone imagined. The main thing that suffers in that whole experience is your pride, and that's a good outcome. That's, what you, that's the one thing you do want to see you know, cut off at the knees. But so often we fight against the repentance moment, and what are we fighting for? 
a long, drawn-out, painful series of broken relationships and self-righteous indignation and more sin on top of it all. I mean, the choice we make makes no sense when you think about it. All of that to preserve pride. It's another example of how the enemy lies to us because in those moments you're feeling the lies of the enemy tempting you that you should stand your ground. You should deny the truth because you need to protect your image or something else. And the lie there is that that's not at all healthy. That's not at all helpful. The Lord brings light to sin so that you'll repent and then in doing so, throw yourself on his mercy and then you see how the God can use your humility to good effect. It's just, an, if anyone here has ever had a, a somewhat like that experience, something of that sort, you probably can testify all day long about, oh my gosh, it was so much better after I did that. It was just, it worked out so much better. God was so good to me after I did all that. It's just what he wants. How does David respond? Well, even before Nathan is able to announce the third punishment, remember Nathan's just talked nonstop now since, since David said, kill him. At the moment he's heard the first two, David interrupts Nathan. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. I, I think this is, this is David, remember we said there's moments when you can see David at his best. Even in the midst of this horrible situation, this is David in a good, a good way. He admits right away. David does not play those other cards. He's not defensive. He doesn't deny. He doesn't run away. He doesn't kill Nathan. He says, I have sinned and I've sinned against the Lord. And you can only imagine a man with David's heart, how he must have felt when he recognized what he was Experiencing. Although I would also say this, if you've run that long with sin, secret sin, a man like David, there's also a part of him that's like, man, I've been wanting to say this for a while. Uh, you know, you don't want to have to deal with it, but you just are glad it's over. I'm done hiding. I'm tired of the game. I'm glad it's out. This is David's first expression of repentance, but there were days, weeks, and years after this that David is living out his repentance. We're going to see some examples later in the book in which David is still seeing the ramifications of this moment and he's accepting them as further uh, discipline from the Lord. And there's a psalm he wrote, Psalm 51, which is specifically and explicitly in the text of the psalm. It is a psalm in response to his confession about Bathsheba. That's what the psalm says at the beginning. So we know he's talking about this situation, Psalm 51. And I won't read all of it. I'll read 13 verses of it. Listen to the man in his own words which is his confession of what he just said in one sentence to Nathan. Psalm 51.1, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. My, in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the, inner, in the hidden part you uh, make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. So, you know, that's, 
how many different worship songs do you know that are written out of the words we just said here, right? It's just such a well-known psalm for good reason. He feels the weight of his sin. He calls for the forgiveness of God. He acknowledges, look, I've been a sinner since I was born. Sin is always before you. You see all that I have done. I need your forgiveness. I need you to wash me white as snow, etc. He needs to be sanctified. Nathan hears David's heart, I think, when David says, I've sinned against the Lord. You know, that one short phrase is not adequate to show us what was going on in the moment. There's something about the moment. Nathan recognized how crushed David was, and so Nathan immediately reassures him. Your sins have not separated you from God. The Lord has taken them away. You're forgiven in that sense. You're not gonna die in that sense. That is a reassurance for everyone who has placed faith in Jesus Christ, just as David had done in the promise of a Messiah, that you're saved by your faith. David says in verse 10, the Lord created David, um, uh, verse 10 of the psalm, David uh, had a clean heart because God could create that in him. One day he'll have a sinless body too because God's gonna give him that as well. And Nathan's reminding him, you are not less clean on the inside because of your sin. That you are no dirtier before, no cleaner later. You, you are what God has created you to be. That is, you were born into sin and made clean by God. Your actions did not bring you to sin. Your nature did. And neither did your actions bring you to cleanliness. God did. So your actions in this case aren't changing your situation either way. I like to say you didn't become saved because you did good things. You're not gonna become unsaved because you did bad things. Salvation doesn't turn on what you do. That was never the gospel. So the heart of repentance, though, understands that the confession that you're making, the need to be upfront about your sin, is not a salvatic issue. Nonetheless, it is necessary, and you accept the discipline of God understanding that it's designed to provoke that kind of confession. And you know that God will use it in some way to his glory. David ended the psalm by saying, I'm gonna use this to teach transgressors not to sin. I'm gonna convert sinners out of this. And he's not saying that in some kind of pious way. He is saying it the way everyone should. Let me help someone else avoid the problem I, I just got myself into. Let me use this in some way to glorify God. I would say in many ways a repentant sinner offers a more powerful testimony of God's grace than a person who has never seemed to fall as they walk with Christ. And in reality, both are sinners, right? There's no such thing as someone who hasn't fallen. But the one who has fallen and perhaps done so publicly and then repented publicly is in many ways more useful to God in reaching those around us who need to rise above their sin because they can see in that person encouragement, right? When you walk as a Christian projecting perfection, First of all, you're not being honest with God or anyone else, but secondly, you're not giving the sinner around you any encouragement to repent. They can't equal you. You're up there, and they're down here, and I guess I'll never be that person. That's not real. Uh, David is showing the kind of humility God wants out of everyone, which is we all have problems. We all have sin. We all need to repent. It's probably a daily thing for all of us, and when we pretend it's not there, we're not helping us or anyone else. Later, we're gonna see David dealing, as I said, with some of these ramifications, and his godly approach to God's discipline is a testimony of him following after God's own heart. You know, there's never a time you have to, it's like we think, well, I follow after God's own heart until I fail and then the whole thing's out, you know, the, whole, the gig's off, it's all done. No, now you have a chance to follow after God's own heart in how you respond to your sin. And then you have a chance to respond in the way of God to your discipline and then to your testimony. And the whole train of events, wherever they lead you, is an opportunity to be godly and to do as God would want. 
Now, it's better to never go down the path, but when it happens, don't give up because you had some bad day. Use what you did wrong now in a good way if you can. And as you see this going on, ask yourself this, what was the effect of, God, of David's confession? It was a brief moment here, but as we saw in the psalm, it's accompanied by a true heartfelt re- repentance on David's part. What was the effect of it? Did it stop God's discipline? Not at all. Uh, his confession stops the bleeding, if you want to put it that way. In other words, it gives opportunity for the discipline to come to a close, but it does not short-circuit the discipline. Notice, you know, even after he makes this little momentary confession, Nathan will pick right up again and hand out the third penalty, as God has already appointed it. It's been said that you can take a nail out of the wood, but you can't get rid of the hole. And in the same sense, there is a consequence for sin, and there are at times the discipline of the Lord for our sin, and if we respond well to those consequences, we can bring that to a close. That doesn't mean God's going to back up and say, oh, never mind on all the consequences. It's not necessarily his plan. God doesn't just discipline you in order to get rid of the sin. That's not the whole point. It's certainly part of it, but it's also meant to help you turn a bad situation into a good testimony. By by the effect of discipline, what the Lord is showing you in the world is he does not approve of what you did. If God never affected discipline, not only would we have no incentive to step out of our sin and to do better the next time, also the world would have a confusing message about sin from the believer who went day in and day out doing whatever they wanted with no response from God. So God reminds his children that he's displeased with sin through discipline, and he gives a testimony to the world about his desire for godliness in those that are his. So despite David's repentance, Nathan continues with the final punishment and notice he gives a reason for why discipline must continue now despite David's repentance. The uh, third one is because David broke the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Verse 14, notice the word however, despite your confession, David, despite your repentance, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Israel to blaspheme, The child also that is born to you shall surely die. Now, the final punishment is death for David's son, a life for a life, because David took Uriah's life, and obviously by far the worst punishment for David. It meant he would lose someone he loved. Remember, as I said earlier, the Hebrew word here for child is that of a boy, a lad, something, uh, you know, toddler and up, maybe as old as 10 or 11. So this is not an infant, and of course I'm not saying that a father cares less if an infant dies. What I'm saying though is, humanly speaking, it's even harder to lose an older child in the sense that you've gotten to know the child in a deeper way, and there's a stronger relationship, which makes the loss that much harder to bear. And in verse 14, Nathan adds that David's sin has given opportunity for the Lord's enemies to blaspheme, which is why this penalty must go forward. And here's the issue. The issue is, that Israel's enemies saw in Israel's God the, the standards for godliness that God wanted the world to see. And they would make comparisons between the standards of life that God required for Israel to those that were used in other cultures. Uh, the pagan uh, cultures that surrounded Israel lived very differently than Israel did. Uh, they practiced things like prostitution and fornication and murder as part of their normal everyday life, and they, they lived that way without regret, without any sense of moral uh, obligation to do better. Uh, 
And here's Israel in the middle of all of them living in a very different fashion. So the question becomes this, what would they think of the God of Israel if they see the leader of Israel practicing the very same things they did? Uh, murder, uh, adultery, lying, I mean, pretty much he's one of us. Oh, and they got a different God? Oh yeah, so sure they do. It doesn't seem like that God cares any differently about what they do than our God does. What's the difference? So the Lord says, I can't have that blaspheming. So I'm going to do something here that will make clear my opinion of your sin. And by taking his son in the way that he will, there can be no doubt that the God of Israel has judged David for that sin. So Nathan says the child must die so that Israel's enemies must understand God did not approve of David's actions and there was a price he had to pay for them. And the price is not being paid to obtain forgiveness. Don't, don't be confused on that point. It is a price to obtain vindication for the Lord. This death of the boy is not rectifying something in David's life, it's rectifying something for God, for the name of God before the nations. Of course, it's also a penalty for David, but the point is it's made necessary for the glory of God. God is using evil for a great good to protect his glory among the nations. So the third punishment, being the worst, is actually the first one that David will experience, and it must be the first one, and it must come quickly if it's going to have its intended effect. Verse 15, so Nathan went to his house, then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling, and he would not eat food with them. So it makes sense that God is acting so quickly to take the boy's life, and here's why. Everyone dies sooner or later. Sooner or later, we're all gonna die. So when God says your death is gonna mean something, I'm connecting a set of circumstances to your death in order to uh, communicate something to the world. Well, that death needs to be happening then very quickly in keeping with God's pronouncement because what if, uh, let's say for argument's sake, David's son had died 40 years later. Well, then who's gonna connect that event to the judgment that God said was the responsible reason for it? The whole point here is that the kid dies in such a way that the meaning of the death is understood by everyone. So you can't wait around to some other day. It needs to be now. It needs to be obvious that God did what he said. It comes right after his word. There's a connection there that can't be ignored. But interestingly, the Lord doesn't choose to take the life of the boy the way he did the firstborn in Egypt, for example. He doesn't strike the kid down immediately. He gives him a week-long sickness. He lingers for a whole week. That choice would seem to be intended to provoke uh, in David a prayerful response, and in the course of him dealing with that, teaching him a lesson. So the delay prompts David to engage in a, a prayer and fasting period, and of course he's hoping to change God's mind, spare his son's life. Uh, we hear about the elders of the household joining in the vigil, and David lying on the ground in front of the bed, I guess, and, uh, or this, the, the place where the son, they, they didn't have beds like we do, they would have lay on the ground on a mat, but he's laying at the feet of the child on the, on the ground, and you know, the Lord already said this is going to happen. The Lord already said he's going to die. But until it played out, David couldn't know for sure that God wasn't willing to change his mind. He couldn't know for sure what his response would be to the petitions David was making. It's worth a try. We would do the very same thing. So he had nothing to lose. And obviously, he's desperate for his son to survive. The, the experience that David had through this moment 
taught him something important. And that was how vulnerable Israel was to his misdeeds. I mean, obviously his sin with Bathsheba has already taken the life of Uriah. That should have been obvious. But David didn't feel any remorse when that happened. You know, when you hear about David finding out that Uriah died, if anything, he's kind of relieved. That was the whole point, right? So without any remorse for unjust killing, you have a very dangerous precedent in your leader. You never want a leader who can kill indiscriminately and not feel any remorse over it. So the Lord has to teach David the significance of the death of an innocent through a firsthand experience. And David is given time to comprehend in this week-long vigil to, comp- to, uh, to uh, contemplate rather how his actions have impacted this boy and then the nation as a whole. Now, for all of that analysis, I mean, this is a tender moment. And if you're not careful, your sympathies might start aligning in the wrong way as you think about this moment playing out. You might be tempted to see David here as the good guy for a moment, and you start to look at God as the bad guy, and you wonder, why is he letting the kid die? And you have to remember, the whole point of God taking David through this discipline is to provoke out of David the very godly response that you're now finding sympathetic. The whole reason you might find sympathy for David is because he's finally doing what he should have been doing, which is seeking after God and showing humility. But you have to say to yourself, how did he get there? He got there because God has put his son in this situation. God had to move David through those circumstances to get the response he wanted. So if God cut short the process, he also cuts short the lesson. And if the lesson isn't taken here, it's gonna be repeated later. And you can see the impact of this discipline on David in another commentary that David wrote in the Psalms, probably at this same time, in Psalm 38.1. In fact, I would suggest to you that he may have written this Psalm in the week that he was with his son. 38.1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden that weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. And I am benumbed and badly crushed. And I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Sounds like a man who been laying at the feet of a son who's dying because of his sin. He made every appeal to the Lord that he could, and understandably so, and in the end, the Lord's will be done. Verse 18. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they say, behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to our voice, but then how can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead, so David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. He will not return to me. On the seventh day, he dies. That seven 
makes another point in passing that God was in control. He was bringing this end about. David's somewhere on the floor sleeping in the room. The servants are afraid to tell him, as you hear. They're a little worried he might hurt himself after all that's happened in grief, and they don't know whether to talk to him or not, and, of course, they end up just giving it away by whispering, and he asks plainly, I guess my son's dead. They said yes, and in verse 20, it says he gets up, he washes himself, probably hasn't washed in a week, changes his clothes, probably hasn't changed them in a week, goes to worship the Lord, which is a really interesting moment, isn't it? How many of you under those circumstances, would go and worship the Lord. You know, there was a sad story I heard of earlier this year, last year, of a couple, uh, I won't go into any detail, but they were uh, not in this city or even in this country, but they had lost a young child, very young, and they were in ministry, and they had a large church, and so they, were, they had a following in their church. People knew of them. They knew of this child dying, and it was a tragic thing, and they uh, decided to respond to that by asking the church to pray with them for the child to be resurrected. They asked that God, they believed that God was in in the business of bringing people back to life in this world now under those circumstances. And they had the whole church involved in this for a period of time and it was this big, and of course they were just, oh, every time you saw them on TV they were just crying and they were so upset. Well, you know, who, who wouldn't be when they lose an infant? But the point is their response was to make demands that were wholly unbiblical and, un, and, and, un, and ridiculous, frankly, out of their deep grief, obviously, but still, uh, that's the kind of response people have when they're going crazy in grief, right? They don't even know what to do and anything they can latch onto becomes an option, right? The servants see David acting that way and they're starting to wonder about this guy, has he lost it in grief? And yet when you look at what he actually did, it's not a man who is unaware of what God can do or uh, in any way losing touch with reality, it's exactly the opposite, which is why it looks so crazy to the world as represented by these servants. What does David do? He, he embraces the sovereignty of God and the eternity of life. David goes, he, he, he gets himself ready to keep living in this life where he is now alone without his son because he can't go anywhere else. There's still a life ahead of him. He, you know, to sit back and say, because of this person's loss, my current life has lost its meaning, is a very myopic view. It's understandable, it's emotionally driven, but it can't be your lasting view. It makes no sense. Your life didn't depend on them before they showed up. Your life doesn't depend on them after they're gone. Your life is your life. David says, in effect, once I had a clear understanding of God's purpose and his decision in this outcome, to sit around and think I can change it after the fact, that's the crazy thing. That's the thing that stops me from living. And so he moves on in life in what was otherwise a very normal pattern, normal day, including, and interestingly, I think, worship. What would you be worshiping God for in that moment? Well, in in Jewish culture, mourning for death, uh, the death of a loved one, is usually a very elaborate, ritualized process. And everyone expects you to do it as if to say, if you don't follow the process, it's a... You know, it's dishonoring the memory of the dead. And that's the problem here. David's not taking on the ritual of the mourning, whatever ritual might have existed in that day. I don't know that it's necessarily what exists today. But the point is, whatever they normally did, David wasn't doing it. And in verse 21, the servants are, are starting to wonder, has David lost it? Is he cracking? But look at what David is actually doing. David says, I am going about my life now in the normal way because there is no other way. He, he knew the boy wasn't coming back. 
Back to my story a minute ago. God does not resurrect people to bring them back here again, except under extraordinary circumstances like a Lazarus, and even then, only because it was a necessary sign for his son's ministry, not because it's a normal aspect of God's life, uh, what he does in general, or to support Paul in Paul's ministry. It's, it's not for its own sake. God's priority is not seeing us live days longer on this earth in our current form, our current life. That's not a goal of God's on any level, except that it might serve some greater ministry purpose. So David says, look, I did my best to make an appeal while he was alive, but now that he's gone, that's God making clear to me what the plan is here. I have to turn my attention back to life as I know it now, and that is living with eyes for eternity. That is, in the face of God's discipline and the death of those we love, this is what spiritual maturity looks like. He is modeling the perfect attitude for every believer in the face of the death of a friend or a loved one who's a believer. Death is coming for everyone. Someday you cannot stop it, nor should you want to. You can pray for more days. You can pray to be healed. You can pray for better health, pray for whatever comes to mind. Maybe God will give you a little yes now and again. One day, friends, the answer to that prayer is no. One day, the answer to can I live longer is no. You're done, whatever that day is. And like David, when that day comes for someone you love, let them go because God's will has been revealed in that matter. And if the person was a believer, you can confidently say what David said at the end of verse 23. He can't come back here, but I'm gonna go see him. He's stating the obvious. The plan for all of God's children is that we enter into glory. Now we get there one day at a time, one of us at a time. Here and there, each of us on our appointed day. It is not God's plan for someone to go from here to there and then come back here. (laughs) Not until we're glorified together. And by the same token, our loved ones do not hear us after they die. They are not coming back here in spirit form. They are not inhabiting your cat. They do not hang around in your living room talking to you through the light switch. I mean, death is a one-way trip and we follow after them. So why dwell on what cannot be Better look forward to what will be as God has promised. That's what David is saying. It is a biblically mature point of view on death after life. And what's confusing the servants is, where is all the maudlin mourning? Where's all of the, the hand-wringing? Where's all of the sorrow? And where's all, he's like, why am I, why would you want me to do that? I'm gonna see him soon. I can't bring him back. There's no point in the meantime. I got things to do. Why do you need the other side of that? Some need it because it's how they cathartically move past it. Fair enough. Others do it because they feel like they're obligated because that's what we all do when people die. That's not healthy. And for any Christian who really gets stuck there for too long, it's a sign that you don't have eyes for eternity. You don't understand how things are from God's point of view. That is, I can assure you that David's son would not have wanted to return. And in fact, that brings up a couple thoughts to end tonight, the ones that I said we might challenge you and we'll just finish on this briefly. What do you think of God commanding the son to die? Some have even objected to the notion that God is the one who did it. I've read some very interesting, completely wrong commentaries that try to take God out of this, as if it's unfair to think that God might have put a son to death for the sin of his father. Oh, that can't be right. God would never do that. Despite the fact that in verse 11, the Lord says explicitly he is the one raising this evil up, And in verse 15, he says again, explicitly, he will be the one to strike the child. I mean, he doesn't mince words. It's not even questionable. It's on the page. And yet some still feel the need to pull God out of this as if we have to defend God. 
He doesn't need it. Your defense, trust me. He is perfectly in control of his own situation. He is the giver of life, and he is the taker of life. He decides when you're going to be born. He decides when you're going to die. He can do whatever he wants. There's absolutely no judgment that you can make on that. Who is able to say to God how long anyone should live? What's the right number? Who's... Who can actually tell God anything on that point, right? He decided the day that this child would die. But here's the thing to remember. That's not a punishment for the child. That's where those who try to excuse God in this have made, it, made the big mistake. They think they have to excuse God somehow and make up for it because otherwise it's a problem. It's not a problem. The child did nothing wrong. He's not being blamed and he's not being punished. The child is just collateral damage because of David's sin. And it is not a bad thing that the child is dying. If David's statement in verse 23 is true, that is, this son went to be with the Lord and David knows one day he will join him there, if that is true, then how can you say the child is being punished by being brought into the glory of God? (laughs) Do you really think this boy was unhappy with the outcome when it turned out the way that it did? Do you suppose he wanted to come back? No. You see, it's from an earthly point of view that we assign value to things that God says in his word don't have value that way. This is a problem of perspective. The godly perspective understands death is never the criteria by which you judge God. If everyone, listen to this logic, if everyone is going to die, and justly so, because we all have sin, and if every believer who dies goes into glory, then how can you hold any death against God? If anything, what should we say? We should say that keeping a believer alive a long time on earth is more cruel than taking a Christian when they're young if the glory of God is our next destination, (laughs) right? I mean, I'm looking at some of you in here and I'm thinking, what did you do wrong to live this long? (laughs) Right? We're judging from a selfish, earthly person. I didn't look at any particular person. I I just scanned the room. We, you know, it, Now, keep in mind, I understand in the moment of death, there is sorrow, there's loss. I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm not saying we shouldn't experience that. I wouldn't be, you know, I I would take someone in that situation and I would deal with them kindly and, and thoughtfully and empathetically, of course. We're not talking about the moment. We're talking about after the moment. We're talking about in a, in a broad perspective of this issue. What should be our attitude? Not a selfish earthly perspective that says this life is the only one that matters, and nor should we judge God that if we get one day less than we wanted, somehow he's an evil God. No, this boy's death was a hardship for David, yes. It was not a hardship for the boy. And it reminds us that you need to see your life the way God sees your life. It is something that he has given to you for the use of his glory. Then it's over. Make the most of your days. Don't hold on too tightly. And don't define your contentment or your security by what you have here. And then one last quick point. Uh, Verse 23 often gets misused in a way that's important to know, although I don't intend to cover it a lot tonight, at least not here in this part of the teaching. Some have used verse 23 to argue that since David said his child is destined for heaven, because David said he'll see him later, then that would somehow mean all infants automatically qualify for heaven. That's how some have tried to misuse this verse. Let me just point out, the text never addresses that issue here whatsoever. That is eisegetical teaching, that is taking an idea and injecting it into the text that the text itself is not trying to address, so it's completely off topic. Secondly, from the text, there is no indication this boy is an infant. As I said earlier, the Hebrew word suggests he's much older, so it's logical to assume that David had had conversations with his son about God and the fear of God and had talked to David, his son, and so very likely his son may have just known the Lord as anybody could, all right? But then, most importantly, The concern that you have in general about what does God do with an infant death or anyone who lacks capacity 
to confess Christ. Whatever decision or, or idea you come up with in response to that question, it has to agree with scripture, and in particular, it has to agree with the scripture that says everyone is born sinful, and apart from faith, no one enters heaven. There's no exception to that. There can't be. If it's possible for any sinful human being to enter heaven without confessing faith in Christ, then no one needs to. If God can send even one person to heaven without faith, he doesn't need anyone to have faith. So the Bible is abundantly clear that one sin is all it took for Adam to lose access to the garden, and one sin is all it takes for any human being to lose access to God, and we all have that one, and we're all born with sin from day one, as David said in Psalm 51, we just read it. So everyone comes into the world in sin, sin has the penalty of death, and there is none who do good, no, not one. So if anyone enters heaven, it's by faith alone, which means that if infants are in heaven, it's because God gives them faith. And he can certainly do that. David himself testifies to that in Psalm 22 when he speaks about himself. Ending with one more psalm from David, he says to the Lord, you are he who brought me forth from the womb and you made me to trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. All right, that's David's own testimony. So the point is I don't have to invent some exception that lets babies into heaven. I just go back to the rule. The rule is you have to have faith and God brings faith. And he can do it at any age. He's not dependent on your intellectual capacity. He's only dependent on the fact that he's the one who authors and perfects everyone who enters into heaven. So if David was made to trust when he was on uh, his mother's breast nursing as a child, then it's possible for any infant. Now, if you ask me what happened to a particular infant, I don't know. We can all hopefully assume God is in a uniform agreement that he's doing this with it without regard to one infant over another, but we don't know. We just know what the rules are, and the rule is it's by faith, and God can bring faith to anyone. Heavenly Father, um, so much to rem remind ourselves of in Scripture today concerning our walk with you, your desire for us to be in holiness with you and obedience to you. Thank, thank you, Father, for those reminders for a helpful understanding of how you discipline. Father, I know that in this room there are many for, for whom sin has been a, a distraction in their life, perhaps now, perhaps in the past. All of us, Father, have those things in our past that we could confess. I ask, Father, that you give us opportunities when the time is right to the right person in the right moment. Will you take advantage of it and walk past those things that may have held us back? Give us that opportunity, Father. And we ask for your forgiveness in advance. And we thank you for our night and ask for another one to come next week as we continue in our study. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.